Before we begin, I was told this morning, just before the service began, about a friend of mine, Pastor Bobby Scott, is known to some of you, and um, there was a fire at his home this morning. He and his family apparently were just barely able to get out of the house. And so um, I just want to take a minute and pray for, for he and his family. Father, we thank you for your preserving grace in uh, Pastor Bobby Scott's life and, and that of his family, O oh Lord, and how a, how a tragedy like this can just demonstrate to all of us the frailty of life and, and how, Father, circumstances can change so very quickly. Lord, I pray for your continued grace and mercy for, for him and the family and the church as they seek to recover from this. Father, may you, may you just help them to walk through these, these next days. And I pr- pray in particular for Bobby, Father, that, that you would enable him to live as a man of God in front of the people of God as they observe his life and how he responds to the difficulties that you have brought upon him. Lord, preserve and protect and continue to provide for that church. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Surprised to see this many of you here this morning after last week. I was only half kidding that if you were to stay here for the whole time and I preached through the entire Gospel of Matthew in one sitting, that you would be free for the next four years. And yet here you are. My only conclusion would be that perhaps you were among the sleeping somehow during that rather extended sermon last week. I, I pray that God would grant me grace not to abuse you again this morning by a, another, um, another time that runs over. So I'll be more careful of the clock. I'm getting ready to make amends with the nursery folks. I think a big box of seized chocolate ought to take care of it. I, Judy said, are you going to write them a you know, apology letters. And I said, no, cause I'm really not sorry, but I, um, I mean, that's just the truth of it. I'm really not, but I will buy them some chocolates and hopefully they'll, um, they'll forgive me. Well, I don't have to forgive me cause I'm not asking for forgiveness. <laughs> hopefully they'll just enjoy the chocolates and get over it. You know, It is Memorial Day weekend, and we do praise the Lord for the many, many men and women who through the years, really through the centuries, have given their last full measure of devotion. And we enjoy the freedoms that we enjoy because so many have made such great sacrifices. I was thinking in preparation for this morning's time together about... The Declaration of Independence. I know it's Memorial Day weekend, and I, I understand the Declaration of Independence is, is 4th of July, but it's close, and so I, I thought I could make it work. You know, that's a, an interesting document, the Declaration of Independence. It's really the product of, of 18th century Enlightenment thinking. It's an amazing document, though, and I, I just want to read for you this morning uh, just a little bit from that document. Thomas Jefferson penned this this great manifesto, and it says, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, government is instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That's the statement that I really wanted to lift out of that document. Deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That, my friends, is very much a product of 18th century Enlightenment thinking. I thank God for the Declaration of Independence and certainly for the ensuing republic that came about. It is only under the providence of God that such things could come to be and that we are the recipients three centuries later of this great movement of God in history. But you know, when it comes to the question of who has the right to rule, it's a really interesting question. Biblically speaking, Who has the right to rule is more of a function of ancestry and promise 
than it is of the consent of the rights of the governed. That's how God... Chapter 1 this morning, Matthew chapter 1, page 957, if you're using a pew Bible. This morning we are going to use Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1 as somewhat of a springboard. And we will see as we begin to unpack really the implications of this first verse that Jesus' right to rule as Messiah is grounded in his descent from two great Old Testament persons with whom God had a very unique covenant relationship. Notice how Matthew opens up the gospel for us here. Matthew 1 and verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This first verse really serves as kind of a gateway or a title to the entire gospel. It sets the foundation for all that Matthew wants to teach. And it's rooted in these two great men of the Old Testament, David and Abraham. It's also interesting the order in which Matthew presents them the son of David, the son of Abraham, because we know chronologically Abraham predates David. And yet Matthew sets it up for us in this fashion. And, and really in this one verse, there is, there is a sense of which you can see the entire structure of the, of the gospel in this one verse. Son of David, son of Abraham. Because the first half of the gospel, really right through chapter 12, you'll remember from last week, is about Jesus coming as the greater son of David and and offering to them the Davidic covenant. We'll speak of that later. And it's only when Israel uh, refuses to receive her king that the message changes beginning in chapter 13, and begins to to broaden and move out until we arrive at the end of Matthew's gospel in chapter 28, and we're to go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, capturing, as it were, God's great promise to Abraham, that in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And so in this first verse, there is so much material loaded in. I think it's good for us as we begin our trek through Matthew to go back and be refreshed with regard to these two great men, David and Abraham. And in particular, the covenant that God made with each of them. For some, this is probably treading over very familiar ground. For others of you, it's perhaps a little hazy in your mind. For others, maybe we're going to explore some things this morning that you were entirely unaware of. But we need to have this in our background because it is very much in the background of Matthew as he writes. So it's worth the time together. Before we do that, let me just begin by defining the word covenant. The word covenant. What is a covenant? What is a covenant? Essentially, a covenant is an agreement or contract between two parties that binds them to certain obligations and commitments. It's an obligation or an agreement, rather, or a contract between two parties that binds them together with certain obligations and commitments. We can talk about a marriage covenant, can't we? A marriage covenant that binds two people together with certain obligations, certain commitments one to another. Now, covenants can be either conditional or unconditional. A conditional covenant is one that depends upon both parties meeting the prescribed conditions of the covenant. That is a conditional covenant. That means both sides have certain obligations to perform and they both must perform those obligations for the covenant to remain in effect. 
And then there are what we call an unconditional covenant, unconditional covenants. And that depends on only the performance of one party rather than two. It's still made between two parties, but its fulfillment is only dependent upon the work of one of the two parties. So we have conditional and unconditional covenants. God relates to his creation through covenants. We should get used to that. He relates to the creation through covenants. And the majority of those covenants are unconditional in nature, meaning they are dependent upon God to fulfill what he has said. And I want to look this morning at two of those covenants, the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenants. Abrahamic and Davidic. And so I want to begin with the Abrahamic covenant. And to do that, we're going to need to turn back into the Old Testament, all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. So I invite you to turn back there. The Abrahamic covenant is originally found in Genesis chapter 12. It is repeated and expanded upon in chapters 15 and 17. So get used to that. If you don't know that, if, that, if you're not conversant in that knowledge, write that down. Write it down in the flyleaf of your Bible. Go to Matthew chapter, or excuse me, Genesis chapter 12 and circle it and then right next to it say, see also 15 and 17 or something like that. So that you can remember Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, 15, 17. You want to have those chapters available to you. Now, the structure of the book of Genesis is really fascinating. It opens, of course, with God's creation of the universe. God spoke and it came into being. The interesting thing, though, about the, the way Genesis is put together is that the, that the history of the creation of the universe is covered in really a very short part of the book. The first 11 chapters of the book move very rapidly. It moves through the narrative very quickly. There are many questions that one could ask that are just flat not answered because the focus is not so much to answer that particular set of questions as it is to get us to chapter 12. Chapter 12, the brakes are slammed on and the narrative slows down. Because the the main purpose that Moses has in writing all of this is to introduce this man, Abraham, and God's great promise with him. The Abrahamic Covenant. Chapter 12 of the Abrahamic Covenant speaks of God's initiation with Abraham. Abraham, and I've entitled this that the covenant was initiated unilaterally. The covenant was initiated unilaterally. Each chapter, 12, 15, 17, adds information about this covenant. So the first thing to note about it is that it was initiated unilaterally, meaning by God. God selected Abraham while he was still living, according to the end of chapter 31, in Ur of the Chaldeans. The ancient city of Ur was located about 220 miles southeast of Baghdad, modern-day Baghdad, on the Euphrates River, down toward the Persian Gulf. The city was a pagan city. The religion of the city was the worship of the moon god. We find out from Joshua chapter 24 and verse 2 that Abraham's father, Terah, was an idolater. He was an idolater. It's likely Abraham was as well. It's likely. But God reached out in his mercy and grace and selected this man out of all of the men of the world in order to establish with him the most phenomenal of promises. The account here is for us in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. One other thing to note is that these first three verses of chapter 12 are really parenthetical. They're parenthetical. 
That is that they interrupt the flow of the narrative. The, the, the narrative is really connected at the end of chapter 11, verse 32, with verse 4 of chapter 12. That's the flow of the narrative. So 1, 2, and 3 is a parenthetical interruption. It's done that way for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that it makes it stand out. It makes it stand out. We know from Acts chapter 7 and verse 2 that God's original communication to Abraham occurred while he was still in Ur of the Chaldeans. Acts 7 and verse 2, Stephen's sermon, he says, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he left before he lived in Haran. So God's call, that which we see recorded in chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3, actually occurred while Abraham was still an idolater living in Ur of the Chaldeans. Another thing that I want to notice for you in this call of Abraham in verses 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 12 is the use of the pronoun. The use of the pronouns. The number of times the word I appears, I and you. I'm going to read it now for us and just pay attention, listen to hear the number of times those pronouns are used because it, it speaks of God's unilateral initiation of this great promise. Verse 1, now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is the initial communication From God to Abram. His name is later changed to Abraham. The essence of the promise is here in these three verses. And it breaks down very simply as follows. God promises this man a land. He promises him descendants or a seed. And he promises him blessings. Let's just take a moment and look at at these aspects of the promise. First, he promises them land. Verse 12, the end, or excuse me, verse 1, the end of chapter 12. You will go to the land which I will show you. The land which I will show you. Turn over to chapter 13. Notice beginning in verse 14. We see this reiterated. The Lord said to Abram, The Lord said to Abram, after, the lo- after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. Verse 17, Arise, walk about the land through its length and its breadth, for I will give it to you. It is about the land. It's about the land. Abraham was a wanderer. He was a Bedouin at this point in time. He, he had a tent and he had some flock, herds and flocks that he moved around to follow the, the grass. And God is promising to this man that he and his offspring will have a permanent homeland. A permanent homeland. A place to call their own. And God is the one who will grant it to him. So he begins in chapter 12, verse 1, with the first part of the promise, and that is, Abraham, I will give you a land, a land. Secondly, he promises to him a seed, a seed. That is, he says in verse 2, the beginning, I will make you a great nation. I will make you a great nation. Abraham is 75 years old at this time, and he is childless. He will live another 25 years before this promise will be 
the beginning of this promise will start to come to fruition. So he is going to go a very, very long time waiting for God to begin to fulfill this commitment. But God promises to him, I will make you a great nation. That is, by the way, the most astounding of promises. His wife is infertile. She is unable to conceive. By the time God brings the promise to pass, Abraham is beyond those years as well. And God reinvigorates the man's body, opens Sarah's womb, and fulfills the promise. God promises Abraham a seed that will result in a nation. In fact, in chapter 17 and verse 6, you can just look ahead there. He says, I will, verse 6, chapter 17, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you, not just one, but many nations of you. And here it is, and kings shall come forth from you. So get the picture. There's this old guy. He has no children. His wife cannot have children. And God is promising that from him and through her will come a multitude of nations and kings. It's an incredible promise. Third, God promises a blessing to this man. Verses 2 and 3. And I will bless you, chapter 12, and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God promises this man that he will both receive and be, that is, give a blessing to others. Ultimately, through his lineage will come both physical and spiritual blessing that will reach, according to the end of verse 3, to all the families of the earth. It will start narrow, but it will widen out over time until it encompasses the peoples of the earth. It's astounding. Absolutely astounding what God has promised to this man. Unconditionally. Unconditionally. It depends not upon Abraham, but upon God to bring these things to pass. So God's covenant with Abraham is initiated unilaterally. Secondly, it is ratified by God unconditionally. For chapter 15, if you'll turn there to see that. Chapter 12, it is initiated by God unilaterally. Chapter 15, it is ratified by God unconditionally. It is ratified by God unconditionally. The context and background of chapter 15 is very simply this. Abraham has just been involved in a war in chapter 14. He has defeated four Gentile kings and he has rescued his nephew Lot, who was taken captive. At the end of chapter 14, Abraham righteously refuses to take any of the spoils of victory. Chapter 14, verses 22 and 23. He is entrusting God to enrich him. He refuses to be enriched by Gentile or pagan kings. And then we move into chapter 15, and Abraham is struggling with his faith. Perhaps he is is wondering... What is going on? All of his hopes, all of his dreams, they are not quite working out as he had thought and supposed. And so God appears to him to bolster this man's wavering faith. Chapter 15 and beginning in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? Since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside, and he said, Now look toward the heavens. And count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. 
Abraham believed God's great promise and God credited it to him, reckoned it to him as righteousness. And Abraham stands as the prototypical follower of God for all of the ages. We all look to this man in his great faith. But God also, notice verses 7 and 8, continues the promise here of a homeland. Verse 7, he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And he said, O Lord God, how may I know that I shall possess it? How do I know that I'm really going to get the homeland? And so God begins the most unique and to our way of thinking bizarre interactions with man perhaps to be found in the, New, in the Old Testament. God enters into, by condescending, he enters into what's called a Chaldean covenant. A Chaldean covenant. Now Abraham was a Chaldean man. And so God utilizes the the forms of his own culture, a Chaldean covenant, in order to demonstrate to Abraham the answer to the question, Lord, how will I know that this promise will come true? And so God says to him, verse 9, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And then he brought all these to God and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. What is going on? In the ancient world, when a covenant was made, a covenant was cut between two parties, they would sever an animal in two pieces and then they would separate the pieces and the two parties of the of the agreement of the covenant would walk between the severed pieces of the animal and it was a symbolic thing that basically said if either one of us breaks our part of the bargain let happen to us what has happened to this animal let us be torn asunder very graphic very bloody very violent way to to convince people that this is a serious deal that we've made god sort of ramps it up here by not having just one animal severed, but basically having a whole series of animals severed. Verse 12, Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it came about, verse 17, when the sun had set, that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces." On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given, past tense, this land. And he goes on to define its boundaries. What is going on? Here's what's going on. Rather than Abram and God passing between the severed animals, God alone passes through the severed animals. Abram himself is asleep, and he's he's seeing all this in a dream and a vision. And God is communicating to him and to us that this commitment to Abram that he has made, this promise that he has made, is so certain because it is dependent only upon God himself. God is the only one who passes through. And God is saying, if I don't keep my word, then let me be torn in half like these severed animals. God's covenant promise to Abraham is ratified unconditionally Here in chapter 15, that takes us to the third, the third observation about this covenant. And for that, we have to turn to chapter 17. I say Abrahamic covenant. You say Genesis chapters 12, 15, and 17. Beautiful. Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, 15, 17. All right, don't forget it. 
Don't forget it. These are key chapters of the Bible. It's a foundational chapters. Chapter 17. The covenant is signified by God surgically. It is signified by God surgically. It's initiated by God unilaterally. It is ratified by God unconditionally. Third, it is signified by God surgically. Surgically. Now, chapter 17, between the end of chapter 16 and the beginning of chapter 17, there's 13 years of silence. That's in the little white space in your Bible. 13 years have gone by. Because of the lack of faith that Abraham demonstrated in chapter 16. But God once again appears to him. And here he, he extends the promise, the covenant to Abraham, to Abraham's descendants. Verses 7 and 8. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. God says, my promises to you, including the land promise, flow through you and to your descendants after you for everlasting. It is an everlasting promise. And as a sign of that promise, that covenant, God gives them a little surgical procedure. Verses 10 and following. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. God gives them a sign in their flesh, a, a surgical mark that distinguishes them as recipients of the great promise and covenant that he has made with Abraham. Now, the surgical procedure itself does not guarantee the blessing from God. It is not the mutilation of the flesh that brings about the guarantee of the blessing. The blessing to receive it is is based upon one demonstrating the faith of Abraham. One must follow in the path of Abraham. But what, what the surgical procedure does is when it is initiated by the faith of a father in his son, it is to, to say to his son and to the world and to the community at large that this, this boy is eligible to receive, to benefit from the promise to our ancestor Abraham. So it is, a, it is something done by faith to set this child in the, in the path of blessing. Let's see if we can summarize what we've learned about the Abrahamic covenant. Let me begin by saying this to you. The Abrahamic covenant is the principal and foundational covenant of the Bible. That's why Genesis chapters 12, 15, 17, I should like break it up into parts, is so critical. This is the foundational covenant of the Bible by which and through which God works out his plan of redemption. It is all dependent upon the promise to Abraham. Following its institution, all other biblical covenants are merely an extension of or expansion of this Abrahamic covenant. They all find their foundation here in the promise to Abraham. The promise of land, seed, and blessing. They are, they are expansions of that threefold promise. In order to benefit, for any people to benefit from the promise to Abraham, they must demonstrate faith like Abraham. They must approach God in the way God or Abraham approached God, which is through faith. But it is the means through this promise, through this covenant, by which anyone can be rightly related to God. Now, let me just say something to you. Kind of mark it down and you can think about it on your own time. And I think the light bulbs will come on. There is the Mosaic covenant and there is the new covenant, right? The old covenant and the new covenant. We call it sometimes the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
During the scripture reading, Andy read a portion from Jeremiah 31 about the new covenant. Well, listen, this is what I want you to get and walk away with. The blessings of the Abrahamic covenant are administered to the people of God through either the Mosaic covenant or the new covenant. The way one receives benefit of the blessing of God given to Abraham is by entering into that blessing through either the terms of the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant, and then when it is abrogated and the new covenant is brought in through the terms of the new covenant. You can think about that on your own time and light bulbs hopefully will go on you go, I got it. Now I understand how the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant relates. They are the means, they are the doorway, they are the mechanism by which the great promises to Abraham are mediated to his people. That takes me to the Davidic Covenant. Jesus Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. This is the other great covenant that Matthew refers to in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. If I say Davidic covenant, you would say 2 Samuel chapter 7. If I say 2 Samuel chapter 7, you would say... All right, let's try it. Davidic covenant. Second Samuel chapter seven. Oh, I love it. I love it. Abrahamic covenants. Genesis. Oh, beautiful. They're beautiful. You're smart too. All right, this is good. Hang on to these things. Second Samuel chapter seven, the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant is God's unconditional promise to David. And it is built upon and flows out of the seed portion of God's promise to Abraham. Specifically, you'll remember in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 6, that God had promised to Abraham kings would come from him. This is the specificity of that promise of kings given to a man by the name of David. Now the background to 2 Samuel chapter 7 is this. David has just ascended to the throne of the united nation of Israel. Seven years of civil war has gone on. And now the nation has become united under David's rule. David has entered into what is now his capital city of Jerusalem in chapter 6. And he has brought with him the Ark of the Covenant of God. And he has brought it into the city and it resides in a tent. But David resides in a splendid palace. And that's bothering David. It's bothering him. David is a man after God's own heart. And so the thought of the ark of God, that is the the very throne of, of the king of Israel, God himself residing in a tent, is troublesome to David. And he wants to do something about it. Chapter 7 and verse 2. So he calls his prophet Nathan to him. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. I want to do something about that. Nathan says to the king, verse 3, Go do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. Nathan forgets to consult with God before he gives David the advice. That night, God appears to Nathan and says, you know, you really got to go back to David and you got to say, sorry, I should have asked permission before I told you to go ahead. And so Nathan does come back with a message of God for David. And the word of the Lord through Nathan to David is essentially this. And you can find it in verses 5 and 11. I guess I'll put it together for you. The end of verse 5, thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? 
The end of verse 11, the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. So here's how it goes. God says to David, will you build me a house? No, you will not. I will build you a house. I will build you a house. And so here in chapter 7, God begins to elaborate for David the most astounding promises that are wrapped up in what we call the Davidic covenant. And God promises David seven things, seven things. For the sake of time, we are going to move very quickly through the seven things that God promises him. Verse 11, 2 Samuel chapter 7, God begins by promising David an eternal house, eternal house. He says, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people, Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Here it is. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. Now, there's a play on words going on here. David wants to build a physical house. God says, you're not going to build me a physical house. I'm going to build you a house. When he uses the word house here, God is talking about a dynasty. He's talking about descendants. He's talking about bodies, people. And what he says to David is that I am going to build you an eternal dynasty. Physical descendants from you will go on in perpetuity. Your family line will not be snuffed out. Let me explain the significance of that. I am an only son. My father was an only son. By the grace of God, I have one son. The Forsyth family dynasty is about as thick as a pencil. Okay? It, is, it is fragile, it is frail, it depends from generation to generation on the ability to produce a son. And so far in three generations, we've only managed one. What God is saying to David here is that your, your lineage, your descendants will never be snuffed out. Never. And we see that given to him here in verse 11, but it's repeated in verse 16. I want you to see it there. Verse 16, 2 Samuel 7, Your house shall endure before me forever. Shall endure before me forever. Your your dynasty, your house, your physical descendants will endure forever. Secondly, God promises David that one of his sons who is yet to be born will sit on the throne after him. Verse 12, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. So, David, you will have a son to sit on your throne. Son to sit on your throne. David's descendants, third promise or part of the promise David's descendants will have a perpetual kingdom. So they have, a, they have a perpetual house, an eternal house. They have a perpetual or eternal kingdom. Now, what is a kingdom? A kingdom is a, is a political body over which one rules. A kingdom is a group of people who follow you. It is the political realm. It's the kingdom. And David, what he says is, is that you will have, your descendants will have a perpetual kingdom. There will always be a group over which you will rule. See it in verse 12. I will raise up your descendant and I will establish his kingdom. It begins there. It'll go from you, David, to your son. And then he goes on to say, verse 13, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It goes over to verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Eternal house, that is eternal dynasty, eternal or perpetual kingdom. Perpetual group over whom you will rule. Fourth part of the promise. Solomon will build the temple that you, David, desire to build. Verse 13. He shall build a house for my name. Of course, we know from further revelation in the Old Testament that Solomon is the one who built the great temple that's named after him, right? Solomon's temple. Although if you were a careful reader of the church's chronological Bible reading this week, you will recognize that it is David himself who laid out all the plans for the temple and provided all of the financial wealth in order to construct it. It was David's plan and desire. It was Solomon's execution. 
It is David's temple in that sense. Fourth aspect. David's throne, his throne will be perpetual. Now, what is a throne? A throne is one's authority to rule. It is your right to rule. So you have a house, which are descendants. You have a kingdom, which is a group of people over whom you rule. And you have a throne, which is your, is your right, your authority to rule over that kingdom. And he says, your throne will be perpetual. Verse 13, I will establish the throne of his kingdom, that is your son's kingdom, forever. Verse 16, your house, David, your kingdom, David, shall endure before me forever and your throne shall be established. How long? Forever, forever. Your authority to rule will be established forever. It'll be perpetual. Now, there's something to understand here. There may be interruptions along the way. You may be temporarily dispossessed from your kingdom. It may be torn away from you for a time. But it can never be permanently severed. You can never lose it altogether. Unlike Saul, who lost it all forever, that cannot happen to you, David. Your descendants will always have a throne that is authority. They will always have a kingdom that is a group of people over whom they are authorized to rule. And you will always have a descendant. You see that, by the way, in verses 14 and 15. Where he says, I will be a father to your son. He will be like a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. David, it doesn't matter what happens. You will not lose it like Saul lost it. Of course, David falls incredibly deep. And low into sin, doesn't he? Not long after this with Bathsheba. If there was any reason for it to be yanked away, it would have been then. And yet God does not remove. God does not abrogate his promises to David. Consequences, yes. Including being driven out of your own capital city by your own son. But it is never revoked. This covenant cannot be abolished because it is established forever, verse 16. Let me turn you to Psalm 89. You might see that this understanding is every bit woven into the fabric of the nation of Israel. Psalm 89, page 604, if you're using a few Bibles. Psalmist writes, verses 3 and 4, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. Verse 30, if his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David." His descendants shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. It will be established forever like the moon and the witness in the sky is faithful. Verses 38 and following in the psalm, by the way, he's calling out because they have been driven out of their homeland and they are suffering greatly. But never does it come into the psalmist's mind that somehow God has reneged, God has removed, God has gone back on his promise to David. It is as firm and as established as the sun. Just as surely as the sun comes up every morning, so God's promise to David is secure. A promise that springs out of and grows out of the eternally secure covenant promise God made with Abraham. 
Turn back to Matthew chapter 1. Page 323. By the way, if I can just say this, that the temporal fulfillments of the seven-part promise to David are the assurance that the future fulfillments will come just as true. Just as God did raise up Solomon, just as God did through Solomon have a temple constructed and so forth, so those future promises are just as secure. Matthew 1 and verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The people needed to hear this. Their hope was fixed firmly on this coming one. Rome now rules them. And rules them in a, in a very cruel way. Their temple worship is corrupt. Their entire way of life has been turned on its head. They are hopeless. They are helpless. They are in despair. They are anxious and longing and looking for one who will come to fulfill the great promises made to David and to Abraham. This is the one to whom they look. They are longing for Messiah to come and deliver them. Jesus is the true son of Abraham. Jesus is the true son of David. He is the one who is uniquely prepared to fulfill all of the promise of God bound up in these two great patriarchs. It is he who will fulfill the ancient covenants. It is he who has the right to rule. The right to rule. Let me leave you with this thought to think about. Who is ruling in your heart this morning? Who has the throne of your heart this morning? Is it this great deliverer, this great Messiah, this long-awaited one, this long-promised one, this one in whom all of the ancient covenants of God come to fruition? Is it He? Who sits on the throne? My friends, the answer to that question establishes the ultimate course of your life. You will either bow before this one by faith, this side of the grave, or you will most assuredly bow at the point of a sword on the other side of the grave. Paul says it that way in Philippians, doesn't he? That at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Christ to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your twin promises through Abraham and David. Thank you, our Father, that you are true to your word. That your promises are sure. Every one of them is yes. That is the fixed natural order by which we can set our our watches. Never varies, never alters. O Lord, in a greater way, your commitments to Abraham and David are true. Our Father, how we rejoice in that because we are the beneficiaries of that great promise. Lord, I pray this morning for those among us here this morning who have yet to humble their hearts before Christ. Lord, grant them grace. Open their eyes to see. Extend your mercy to them and save them. We pray in the name of our risen Savior and King, Jesus. Amen.